Deployment for me just hammered home why we exist, not what we do every day, but what we're actually for. It was humbling. It reminded you that these are people's sons and daughters, husbands, brothers who go out in what it really means to put your life on the line. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Major General Dr. Talita Crossland to WarDocs. She's a graduate of West Point and the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. She also holds a Master of Public Health and a Master of Science in National Resources. Dr. Crossland entered the Army as a Medical Corps officer in 1993. She is board certified by the American Board of Family Medicine and is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. She currently serves as a Deputy Surgeon General and Chief of the Army Medical Corps. You can read her full bio on wardocspodcast.com. Welcome to Wardocs. It's a pleasure to have Major General Dr. Talita Crossland on the podcast today. General Crossland, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks. It's a great opportunity to spend some time talking with some fellow medical corps teammates. Well, tell us, General Crossland, what led you to Army Medicine? I started out always wanting to be a doctor, so I always wanted to be a physician since I was like five. And, and, you know, as you move through high school, I was filling out those little questionnaires you get after you take your preliminary SATs, you know, you take your PSATs and you get all these things from colleges. And one of the first colleges to send me something was West Point. They're like, hey, you can go to West Point and become a doctor. And I said, okay, that sounds good. And I went to the academy to West Point and no one in my family is in the Army. I found myself at the military academy, but I really had a singular focus on becoming a physician since I was five. And so you put the two together, West Point, go to medical school, here you have Army Doc. That's awesome. And we know that you trained in family medicine, but one of the things on your CV is your current job, which I know that very few doctors get to do, and that's Deputy Surgeon General. So if you could tell us just what is the role of the Surgeon General and and what does the Deputy Surgeon General do? My perspective of the role, it's interesting. You started out with, I I, I trained in family medicine. And, you know, uh, some of us go into family medicine because we're a bit ADD. Uh, We we like the variety. We like the range of things we can see. We like the fact that um, you're not sure what the next patient's going to bring you. And I would describe the, the deputy surgeon general role very similar to that. Uh, you know, the scope of what military medicine is, is vast because uh, you have the both professions working together, right? The military as well as uh, medicine. And, and so day to day, I can go from a topic on, you know, hey, how do we do better at taking care of soldiers and family members? How do we get after suicide as an example? How do we improve the readiness, meaning our ability to perform our medical uh, skills? How do we maintain that? So how do we recruit? So how do we fund a major weapon system? And so the deputy surgeon general role is a great mix of medicine as well as Army. And I truly feel fortunate and blessed to, to have this opportunity, to be honest with you. I certainly didn't envision this when I was five years old thinking about becoming a doctor. So in that role, what is it like to interact with senior military 
two, three, four-star generals and governmental leaders. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a saying, everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And so the first thing I would say is that the first thing I appreciate is everyone's trying to do the best. And so we in the military and certainly we in medicine really don't have a corner in a market of service. And so all those leaders are trying to serve and bring value. For our military senior leaders, I find that their ability to think across really deep, difficult problem sets and to bring clarity is, is something I enjoy watching and experiencing and being a part of. Sometimes I, I feel for our most senior leaders, they have to make hard decisions. And day to day, that is what our job is as senior leaders in, in our Army, is if it's an easy decision or if it's an easy answer, those aren't the things that get pushed to that level. And so the level of commitment that comes with those positions, you see it day in and day out and, and folks trying to do the best they can for our military and our nation. When you're going through medical school, you're probably not thinking, someday I may have an office in the Pentagon, but now you, there is an office for you at the Pentagon. Uh, do you have any good Pentagon stories that people would be interested in? Well, I, you know, first, it is a bit surreal. I actually was in the Pentagon today, and I was walking one of the many, many, many halls in the Pentagon, and I almost had to pinch myself. It's a little, I, I, when, I, when I grew up in New York, I just didn't see this in my future, and it's pretty neat. And I called my dad as I was driving home from the Pentagon and was talking with him about that that experience. I got a couple of Pentagon stories. They're not sexy, but they're humorous, right? And so um, my first assignment in the Pentagon, I was assigned to the staff. I was a Lieutenant Colonel P, promotable. And literally, the week after I was promoted, I got elevated to note taker. I described my job the first time as I was the hey you girl. So folks would walk past, I had a little office to cubicle and folks would walk past and they go, hey you. I'm like, yes sir. And I go over to Pentagon and support so-and-so and take some notes. And so one time I got, hey you, go over to the Pentagon and support the Surgeon General as he briefs the SAC Army. And I thought, this is gonna be cool. I'm going to the Pentagon. I'm gonna meet the Secretary of the Army. I was so excited. And so I go over and I walk with the Surgeon General over to the to the area where they have all the conference rooms at. And uh, he takes a seat at the table. And as I'm sure you all can envision, there's some chairs on the back wall. And I dutifully sit in one of those back wall chairs. The secretary walks in and just actually just before he walks in, someone comes up to me and says, who are you? And I say, well, I'm Colonel Crossland and I'm backseating the Surgeon General. And I'm like, yeah, not in the room. And I got thrown out the room. I, I, did, I didn't rate to be in the room. And I got to be in the control room. And remember, I was there to take notes. And then the Surgeon General decided not to project the slides. So I couldn't even see what he was saying because he decided to talk to the Secretary of the Army as I was responsible for trying to take notes. And so I was hitting a little button trying to zoom in. And <laughs> I remember thinking, uh, this is a bit humbling. But it is it is part of our bureaucracy and how we get stuff done. I did get to pass the secretary, though, when I came out of the control room and he was coming out of the conference room. Uh, that was before the selfie days. And so I, I wasn't able to get a selfie. So now as the deputy surgeon general, you get a chance to sit in for the surgeon general. And so you're talking to the chief of staff of the Army, joint chiefs of staff. What are they expecting from medical? I mean, they're focused so much on lethality and you know, how do we win wars? What do they expect from the medical profession? I think they expect us to continue to deliver the successes we have 
from our previous battles, right? From Vietnam to our Gulf War, to our war on terror, to our current conflicts. We as a nation and as a military have enjoyed some of the highest survivability rate. And the expectation is, is that we're going to continue to do everything we can to bring folks home alive and to bring folks home alive in a position to have good quality of life, to keep soldiers healthy, to be able to deploy soldiers. So while the focus is on lethality as well as survivability, because we we see those two going hand in hand, I think our most senior leaders still expectation really has not changed. And while we're not always the first word off of a warfighter's mouth, We're not that far behind, and the role of the military, medical departments, Army, Navy, Air Force, in battle is unquestioned. Our ability and our willingness to serve in those austere, harsh locations to take care of our service members is appreciated. They expect us to to continue to deliver. Let's go back to your first assignment. Did you feel prepared for that assignment? Do you have any particular stories from that assignment? Yeah, my first assignment, I felt a little bit like Medicine Woman. You know that TV show? I went from uh, residency and I went to Korea. And I was at Camp Walker. And Camp Walker had, we didn't call it, we called it an urgent care center. Open 24 hours a day, seven days a week with an ambulance. So in some places, they call that an ER. And it was me, a GMO, and a PA. And for a year, we staffed and supported that community. Clinically, I learned a lot. I I gained a lot of confidence. I learned that the ability to think through a clinical situation and to take care of a patient when it's not when it's something you hadn't seen before. I had a I had a case where I walked through the urgent care center and it was a uh, it's actually a marine and the GMO was standing and he had the bed in Trendelenburg and the blood pressure the dimap was flashing like 80 over 40 and I walked past and then I came back and I looked and I said Is that blood pressure real and he says yeah I think so and I said what happened and he said well he was taking his PT test and he was about two and a half miles into his three mile run the marines run three miles when he collapsed. And he brought him in and he was profoundly hypotensive. He wasn't tachycardic. And we were just running through the gamut of what could have possibly caused a young, healthy Marine to collapse. We had fluids going and I was about to reach for pressors and we set him up. And when he sat up, he had all these impressions. He had dermatographia. And what he had had was exercise induced anaphylaxis. I had, I had never heard of it before. I had never seen it before. And I ran to Tintinelli's, which I kept at the ready and with the signs that he exhibited. And so I had a lot, I had a lot of first in my first assignment and I felt I was prepared clinically. I learned a lot about the army because it was Korea and I was in an operational assignment. So I, I learned a bit about how to be a better teammate, how to be a good teammate, wants to be better, but be a good teammate. I appreciate the role of our NCOs and our medics. I, I developed a, a deep uh, respect for our, our medics and our PAs working with them, because you can imagine with three of us, with uh, GMO, PA, and myself, the medics were very important in that 24-hour shift that um, that we ran in the so-called urgent care slash ER. Uh, so yeah, I, I felt clinically prepared, and I felt like I grew a lot as a as a soldier and as an officer. So looking through your your CV, you've had a whole bunch of different opportunities to lead and, you know, graduate medical education as a commander, 
uh, as a staff officer. Which one of those various assignments would you say is your most challenging and why? There were a couple that I found challenging. When I was at Madigan, I, I got to fill several different roles. And we also were what I would argue is the height of uh, op tempo for deploying and, and trying to uh, be associate program director, supporting the residency, supporting the community, supporting deployments. And so RTC, Camp Surgeon. And what I found that one to be is not so much a challenge with the intellect, it was physically challenging. We worked, I worked long hours. And that was right around the time the 80 work rule came into effect as well. The last two years as the Deputy Commander General of Operations and the DSG, so today is my first official day as just the Deputy Surgeon General as uh, Major General Talley takes on the DCGO role. I got to hold that down for the last year. You know, we're leading through transition, right? There's a lot going on. And it is challenging, certainly at the strategic level, to try to pull things together so that we can have a cogent, clear way ahead, right? There's, there's lots of things going on. And if we're not able to focus on the things that are most important and lay the groundwork and be disciplined and get the things we need done, we'll solve today's challenges, but we won't be positioned to be effective going forward. And so we have to find room to do both. This current environment is challenging because of the resourcing. There's always ebbs and flows. So looking at resourcing constraints during a very dynamic period of transition while we're coming out of a pandemic. I worry about the strain and stress on our force. I worry about the strain and stress on our our medics. What would you say is your favorite assignment of all the ones you've had? And do you have any stories from that particular assignment that really jump out? You know, I've asked that a lot. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I've, I've loved a lot of my assignments. Um, I'll give you some of my more memorable ones. I think when I was assigned at uh, Fort Hood, I got to live the role of the Iron Major. Uh, and uh, I got to go out to NTC not once, but twice. And the second time I was out at NTC was, was a little humorous. The, the four, we went out on a long weekend and the four forgot to order the porta potties which means we're in the box, which means porta potties didn't show up for four days. I got to be that, that, that profis doc with that unit and learn what it is to actually be active on the team versus passive. Right? So I'll tell on myself as that major, I was that profis doc and we would go out on missions and we had an emergency and they're like, hey doc, where, where were you at? I'm like, I don't know. Were you near Bicycle Lake? I don't know. Were you this? I don't know. I'm, and then just as I almost said it, I realized how, how sad it sounds when I was going to say I'm just a profist doc. And so what I learned in that, that experience, and I made some really good friends outside of the medical corps. When you sit in the desert on an exercise, there's a lot of downtime. And so I made some medical service corps friends. I made some line friends. And I grew and learned as a soldier. I really enjoyed Hood quite a bit. Part of the start of a residency ran the first large clinic, got, got, drank some of that 4ID Kool-Aid, met some senior leaders that are mentors for 10 to 15 years and ongoing. I loved Europe. I was a deputy commander for Army Health Clinics, with outlying clinics. And when you think about that, it's like that's like being the chief of staff for clinics that span Italy, Belgium, and Germany, and getting to interface with different healthcare systems. I had been the commander of Grafenbrier 
two, three years prior to that, and that was a great assignment, getting to work with the Germans and learning about their healthcare systems and getting to know our German local nationals and just experiencing the culture. So you mentioned a little bit about your experience at the National Training Center, NTC, when you were at Fort Hood, and you also talked about being a prothist doc. And for those who don't know what that is, a professional filler, because a doctor has a, a day job that they see patients in the hospital often, and then they join the unit to train. How does that work? How it should work is you figure out where the team needs you and how you need to bring value to that team. And so the first thing you have to bring is your clinical competency. So making sure you're trained and ready personally uh, to deploy. And then the second is there's a real responsibility to train the rest of the team. You know, I mentioned that in Korea, I developed a deep appreciation for our medics and our PAs. And certainly when I was in my PROFIS assignment, that just grew more. Those are the teammates that are going to help you keep people alive. That's an important position. It's why we're different, quite frankly. It's that mission that makes us uh, different than had I not gone on to be a military physician. And so when I deployed, uh, having been a PROFIS doc, it was helpful to know what it is to be added to a team that's already been training that's already in stride and how a little bit of humility and a willingness to to go wherever needed and help however you need to help was helpful for me to have learned that early on in my career. Any particular stories from deploying as a, a propus? It, it was interesting how I, I, I deployed. I went to work one day. I'm in Madigan. I, I'm the associate residency director and the deputy chief of the department walked past me in the hall and said, hey, we need you to deploy as part of the augmentation package. And I was on my way to clinic. And I was like, okay, what does that exactly mean? And he said, well, you're going to um, clear your schedule and you're going to be gone in two weeks. I finished my clinic. They clear my schedule. I sort of kind of stumbled through what that meant. And we went to the CRC and they took good care of us and got us ready to go into theater. And, and then we deployed. And when we joined that 31st Combat Support Hospital in Belide, that team had been there for a while already. Uh, they were gracious in integrating us. A little bit of a funny story. We got in and, of course, it's Iraq. It's hot. It's really, really hot. And we convoy from the Baghdad airport to the green zone. And we get in the green zone and there were a large group of us that had went as part of this augmentation package. And the cash had actually split between the green zone and the lot. And so about the second day, I was sitting in morning report and the commander at the time said, hey, Crossman, you go to the And I said, okay. And, you know, um, the known is way more comfortable than the unknown. It's not like the green zone was paradise or that it was not in a war zone. But at least at that point, by the third or fourth day, I kind of had my routine going. And I kind of fell into a group of people. I had my hooch, we're inside and so forth. And so for about a week, I just did nothing. And I'd show up in morning report and say, hey, you still here, Crossland? And I was like, yes, sir, because they didn't actually tell me how to get to Balad. They didn't say anything, just said, you're going to go to Balad. So I was a bit passive aggressive, I admit it. And I, I, I did nothing. And about a week into that, he, the commander looked at me and says, hey, you still here? And I said, yes, sir. And he, and he looked over at someone and said, hey, get her set up for the next convoy uh, and let's get her up to Balad. At that point, I became a very motivated major. And I went down to the ER and I asked where was the next flight going to Balad rather than to a, into a convoy. And I found a flight and I got my stuff on a helicopter and, and, and I flew into Balad and enjoyed the other half of the cash. 
deployment for me just hammered home why we exist, right? Not what we do every day, but what we're actually for. And it, it was humbling. It was difficult sometimes. It reminded you that these are people's sons and daughters, husbands, brothers who, who go out and what it really means to put your life on the line. We had a Marine get shot and it's a podcast, but if you all can visualize, it was a through and through through his back, his, his flank, all soft tissue came out the back. As I was cleaning his wound up, I was talking with him and, and I said to him, you, know, you just want to spend a night and get your legs back under you and catch your breath. And he looked at me and says, nope, no, ma'am, got to go back to my Marine. I got to get back out there so that they can see that I'm okay. And so my deployment uh, reminded me that those very young, oftentimes sailor, soldier, airman, Marine that raised their right hand is the same person that when we're not in a deployed setting that will do what my young private did in Korea, which was put diesel fuel into an unleaded car, right? And you go, you want to explode and out it out, but that's the same guy that's going to grab his medic bag and run out onto a battlefield, right? Uh, and it just reminds me of, it, it, it hit home what we do and what we're for. So how do we know when medical corps officers are ready for deployment since you've had so much experience being in the military? So I, I think no one's ever ready for, um, for war, right? What I mean by that is, is right, there's a, a technical, you know, the technical, cognitive, there's a physical, there's a mental, there's a spiritual, there's all of that. And then there's the experience, right? And so how can you get people to be as ready as possible? I think we have some some good lessons learned, right? When, when I got ready to deploy, I asked, what are the things I need to be able to do? I was a, I'm a family doc and I was in a EMT, right? I was in the emergency room, basically, dealing with trauma. And for those of you who don't train in family medicine, trauma is not a core competency that's going to need it. And, and the Army trains you for it, right? They, they focus. So we, we, we do know some things. Right. And you just got to be very good and competent at that. As we work through being more objective at what it means to be ready, we're looking at what procedures and what technical things you need to do, regardless of your AOC, your, your area of concentration, your specialty in medicine, or regardless of what your military occupational specialty is as a medic. And we can map those things out. But I just don't want to overstate that that's what it means to be ready, right? Because we're going to send a human being into a very difficult environment. And so we'll focus on making sure you're technically proficient, that you're trained as an individual, and that you're ready and trained as a team to perform. And then we are, we're going to, uh, not going to, we have to keep making sure that we check on all those other things that keep us ready as human beings, our mental well-being, as well as our spiritual and our physical well-being. What is one story from your military career that you would like for your family to hear if they were to listen to this in 30 to 50 years? I would want people to remember me as someone who worked hard as part of the team, was willing to share and to sacrifice so that we could all be better. So what would you say to a 20-year-old who's really interested in medicine? Why should they consider the military? So what I would say to the 20-year-old, what I did say to my uh, 20 year old nephew, the military and particularly military medicine, you will have opportunities that you can never, ever dream of. You just, I mean, I look back on my career and, and I look back on things I gotten to do, whether it's jumping out of an airplane 
or it's sitting across from the People Liberation Army of China and having a conversation or going out to a German hospital and having a conversation about why they do ultrasounds on everyone. The range of experiences in the places you get to go and you get to do it with people that are, are just amazing. They all have incredible stories. And that's what I'd say. I'd, I'd say that you have opportunities, no kidding, um, to do things that you, you can't even imagine as a 20-year-old. And I think you'll be given more responsibility and you'll be trained and ready to do those responsibilities. And you have an opportunity to make a difference. What changes do you see in military medicine that will improve battlefield health care in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I see a couple of things. I think there are going to be some technological advances that we already see in medicine that will give us ability to potentially project capability and more importantly, scale it. Uh, whether it be something as simple as virtual health, I'm going to aid Doug and myself. When we were in Korea, it really was a big deal to get somebody to answer a question to help you. And at the time, there was this thing called email, and I would email back to the subspecialist that I knew for my training program and ask a question. And I think going forward, we're going to be able to leverage AI to help us make good clinical decisions. And once we're able to do that, then I think we're going to be able to scale such that it will challenge us to go, does it need to be one of the three physicians on this line using that AI to make good clinical decisions to potentially save somebody's life? I think that we're going to figure out how to transport oxygen with something other than a red blood cell, and that will be a game changer in medicine, pushing the envelopes with training. Again, aging myself, a lot of my firsts were on a patient. A lot of my firsts were on a patient. Uh, today, I don't think that's true. And I think in the future, that's going to be rare. Well, it's really been a honor and privilege to have Major General Dr. Talita Crossland join us on WarDoc's podcast. We really appreciate your time and insight, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you for the opportunity. It was, it was enjoyable to do a little bit of reminiscing and thank you guys um, for doing great work and I look forward to hearing more of the podcast. Thank you. I can't end with anything short of Army Medicine's Army Strong. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.